Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hey, hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And this, today we've actually got a very special guest in Yolo Williams. So, hi, Yolo. Hello both. Nice to be on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, great to have you on. It's an absolute right. pleasure to be here. Oh, well, to be here, to be in Wales, talking, <laughs> talking through a screen. Let's quickly start with what we've been seeing. So as the guest, Yolo, you can start. Oh, have you seen anything interesting recently? Yeah, there's been some uh, passage, cool passage of birds through uh, some some interesting insects as well. Um I've had wood sandpiper, a couple of green sandpipers passing through locally. Painted ladies, one or two. It's not really a painted lady here, but um, I had one, I think, about two months ago when we had the, the end of that really hot weather and then nothing. And then all of a sudden I've had a couple pass through. And uh, what was nice, my first hummingbird hawk moth of the year feeding on red valerian in a garden in the village here. So uh, it's been it's been more insects than birds over the last week or so. Uh, like that on this show. That's always a good thing. Always a good thing. <laughs> what have you seen, Vic? Well, I've I've actually only just been back in the country for about three days. Um, so, uh, but I can honestly say, when I was away, I saw an awful lot of red kites. Like every day, it would be five or six red kites um, flying over the the fields and that, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, but since I've been home, it's been really nice these last couple of days to see the goldfinches enjoying the napweed seed heads in the garden which is great they're, they're back in the in feeding off that and that's kind of it for UK sightings because I've been in Switzerland for a month but I did see my first ever alpine salamander oh. which is is a brand new one for me so there we go so what about you Neil? Well once I recovered from you rubbing in the fact you found an alpine salamander online to me <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I did rub it in I did you rub did, it in. Yes. I'd expect nothing less to be quite honest I've been out a few times when I've been free to go out the weather's been rubbish most of the time but finally managed to survey a local site which is my sort of top scarce emerald site and I barely found any scarce emerald damselflies but I did find 27 southern emerald damselflies which for those who don't know was formerly a scarce vagrant here and it's just starting to get established the last decade or so in the Thames estuary mainly a few other sites as well and I've never found them on this site before, but I'm fairly sure they were there somewhere. So 27 is quite a good start. A few southern migrant hawkers as well, which is another thing it's good for. And I did come across a hare as well, which is always nice in South Essex, not many around. And then uh, next day, I went to another local site for dragonflies, found more of these supposedly rare southern emeralds in South Essex. Uh, willow emeralds, southern migrant hawkers, and a lovely lesser emperor dragonfly, which is a nice thing. And they were all new for friend of mine Naomi Ewald who works with Freshwater Habitats Trust and should be coming on the show as a guest sometime soon hopefully and I tried to repeat the trick of finding those southern emeralds with Stephen Moss a former guest on the show and I've got to look up which episode I always forget to do that but if you scroll down for about what about 10 episodes ago would you say Vic? Like that, yeah it was it? earlier in this year yeah earlier this year and once again on the third uh, attempt to try to find him a southern emerald we couldn't find them but it was rainy and cloudy so can't really moan too much not much to report in the garden other than my pond is full of pond skaters which is always nice yeah but not much to report otherwise in the garden a few goldfinches as well on on, on my teasels rather than my napweed though so uh, yeah but i do have that monster 1.5 meter napweed bush 
in yes. my garden, which they absolutely love. The most I've had on it is eight. Oh, yeah, I've only had one. So. <laughs> you win. <laughs> right, follow up. The Newt's episode we did with Steve. Thanks again, Steve, for coming on and taking over guest host duties. It's gone down quite well. Other than that, I think it's on to the news. Well, actually, just before we go on to the news, I just want to say um, a, just a happy belated birthday to my co-host, Neil, whose oh, birthday okay. it was last week. So happy birthday for last week, Neil. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so on to the news. Did you want to start, Vic? Well, all mine are good news stories. So I'm going with the good news today. And... Oh, should I start with the birds or the butterflies? Oh, go with the butterflies. Go with the butterflies. So actually three different news stories. Uh, Sheffield and Rotherham Wildlife Trust recorded sightings of the purple hair streak butterfly. And this has been across the city. The purple hair streak is generally found in southern England. Um, but they believe that this year it's experienced a population increase due to the warmer spring weather. So, you know, some new sightings for that butterfly. And sticking with butterflies, um, hopefully a lot of our listeners actually joined in with a big butterfly count uh, this year. Uh, they've had over 117,000 counts, which makes it the biggest one ever. So a massive thank you to everyone that contributed to, to that. It is really, really important um, getting all these counts in. So if you haven't submitted yours yet, I don't know if you still can. But, you know, keep an eye on them. Really, really important. And then I'm just going to give my other butterfly one which is the success of the large blue butterfly reintroduction in Gloucestershire and we will talk a little bit more about large blue butterflies in a special episode but they've had success this year with the reintroduction program that's been years in the planning so I think you know some really really good stuff going on there with the invertebrates. I'm going to go with a good news story to start with. I think I'm going to go with the beavers winning the legal right to remain so the government have very kindly let a totally native species <laughs> stay in the UK which is you know quite extraordinary and we're going to talk a bit more about that in the next episode and uh, coming out of this story I saw some people talk about the uh, introduction they're planning an introduction in Wales now have you seen this Olo? Yeah yeah well I've heard about it whether it um, gets the go-ahead or not is is a different matter because I know that up till up till now uh, natural resources Wales have how shall I word mm. this? So their lawyers don't come after me. They've been, um, they've not been particularly helpful. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I remember I visited uh, Gilfac Farm yeah. years ago now, and and I spoke to the uh, person who was, I think, it was running the Welsh Beaver Project. And yeah, <laughs> we've got Derek Gow hopefully coming on the show in a couple of episodes time. And I've just finished his book. I think it's released next month. Uh, but they sent me a pre-print copy and uh, there's some quite extraordinary goings on in the efforts to try and get beavers reintroduced it's quite extraordinary what the hoops they've had to jump through to for it to happen shall i get one of the bad ones out of the way i think a wwf released a report that showed that three harbour porpoises are killed every day in uk waters which is quite depressing it's mainly bycatch in nets from fishing and stuff like that and they're pushing along with a few other people to we have these supposedly marine protected zones but a lot of them are pretty feeble in that way they don't provide too much protection you can still fish in them and it just limits what you can do in theory and if it's not enforced like all these things we did briefly mention in a previous episode about the storks that had bred for the first time you know in the uk for many many years and the chicks actually hatch this is the first time in 600 years storks stork chicks have hatched in the uk which is you know fantastic it's a great success story not only that, and this had to happen while I was away, and I actually saw saw the post about it on Twitter that a stork was actually seen near Froome in early August. 
and it was literally about five minutes down the road from where I live <laughs> and I missed it because I was away you know that's an interesting sighting for around here so I don't know just see how that develops yeah there's been a, and the odd sighting in near me in the last month or so of, of stalk I think we promised didn't we I think it was last episode episode before we promised there'd be lots of breeding success stories coming through by now and we've had a few there's red wings which are normally a northern breeding species have bred on the fair isle for the first time in quite a few years we've had cattle egrets breed on two sites in essex one of them being abbott and reservoir which is quite cool they've got all three species of egret there and those who follow me on twitter probably remember i photographed a cattle egret sat on a sheep there back in winter so it'd be really nice to think that that was that same individual was involved that'd be really nice and they've had golden eagles breed on the trees for life dun dragon estate they basically built an artificial eerie which is eagle nest for those that know and yeah they've landed on it and bred which is really cool so more golden eagles the better which sadly brings me on to the next story which is oh look another satellite tag golden eagles disappeared in scotland under suspicious circumstances which we're going to cover in them soon all these birds of prey disappearing there's a few more stories satellite tag red kite in county durham that's two red kites in the hen and harry in recent times that have disappeared in the north pennines in that area and just before we came onto recording i found out one of my local reserves someone walked over there essex wildlife trust reserve and shot a hobby and you just think why i mean killing birds of prey is dumb anyway but why a hobby and why is it eating too many dragonflies? Well, maybe I'm a chief suspect of the Essex recorder of dragonflies, but oh. <laughs> no, it's really, and a lot of my friends go to this site regularly and it's really depressing in all seriousness. It's, they've walked out onto reserve and shot a bird and you just think, oh, I can't really put it into words really what I'm thinking because I'd probably have to censor yeah, myself no. too much. But um, Yolo, have you got any news stories, wildlife news stories that have cropped up? Yeah, there's a little bit of bad news. Uh, not many people will know this, but um, we've had one golden eagle living in the wild in Wales for the past 13 years. Uh, she was an SKP. She escaped from a chap in um, Maesteg in the South Wales Valleys, and she settled in the Elenid, which is what in Welsh we call the Cambrian Mountains, uh, in the Tregaron area in southwest Wales. And uh, we filmed her last year, stunning, beautiful bird, seven foot, four inch wingspan, Unfortunately, she was picked up dead two weeks ago. Now, we don't suspect foul play, but we're not sure. We've picked up the, the body. It's been sent off for analysis for post-mortem and x-ray and what have you. But it's such a shame. You know, we, we haven't had breeding golden eagles in Wales for probably 200 years, maybe even more than that. So to have one bird hanging around, uh, I must admit, you know, it's to lose her, we've really lost something special from, from the hills of mid-Wales. It's a real yeah. shame. I, I did actually see that just before we came on online about that. It's a yeah, real shame. Yeah, very sad. Very sad. Your recent show, you you could see how nice it was for you to see that eagle camping out in the hide and it come down pretty close oh, to it, that rabbit. It was amazing. On honestly, I mean, we had we we within about thirty meters, I suppose. We put out oh. some dead rabbits we picked up on on the road on this farmer's field and. The buzzards came down, the ravens came down, and the kites came down. And you're thinking, wow, when you're fairly close, these are big birds. But then the, the eagle came down, and she was a leviathan. She dwarfed everything else. And whereas the other birds, even the ravens that had trouble trying to penetrate the skin of the rabbits, 
the eagle just held on to it in one corner and just tore it to bits you know a seriously impressive bird what's the show called it's on iplayer for anyone that wants to watch it in the uk yeah it's called the last wilderness of wales uh it's halfway through two programs down two to go on bbc one wales but as you say uh, all four are now on iplayer as well i was watching it with my daughter a few days ago i think it was we watched the last two because i watched the first one for and uh, she loved the clearwing moths and and the oh, eagle yeah. she went whoa look at the big eagle she was quite even because I, I think i was <laughs> getting a bit involved as well so i think it caught on with her but yeah and what you said it is like oh wow these these better prey oh my god look at the size of that eagle kind of thing when it comes down it just dwarfs everything yeah it is sad but a lot of people are now talking about well we better get on with reintroducing them properly now so hopefully that will spur something on in wales Yolo. a lot of people know you from tv from spring watch and the programs just mentioned but you're well, your career didn't start in TV, did it? You actually worked in conservation for quite a while. I did, yeah. And, and actually, I never wanted to go into TV at all. I had no desire to go um, onto telly. I worked for the RSPB in Wales as a species officer for nearly 15 years. Um, loved my job. And it entailed a variety of things, really. There was um, species monitoring, um, either going out and surveying myself or, or organising teams to survey target species it would have been things like you know hen harrier and merlin and golden plover and goose anders on welsh rivers and what have you um also advisory work advising some of the big landowners uh, about the best way to management for some of these target birds um and the big landowners would be people like at the time forestry commission uh, national trust some of the biggest states as well and also investigations. I was kind of an investigations link in Wales. I wasn't the investigations officer, but I was often the first RSPB person on call to several incidents in Wales. So it was a combination of those three jobs. Um, for the first 14 years, I absolutely loved it. And then things changed. A new boss came in um, and, and, you know, I got on very, very well with my old boss and and and. There was a new ethos there as well, and I was told I had to move into new, uh, into middle management, and in doing so, I would have had to give up most of the field work, and I just refused. There was no way was that going to happen, and I'd had to deal with TV companies um, coming with me to film if it was poisoning incidents, trapping incidents, if it was monitoring the red kite, which, you know, when I first joined was still a very scarce bird, about 50 pairs, all confined to mid Wales. So the TV companies wanted to know how have they done. So I had to deal with the media constantly. Um, didn't particularly enjoy it because, to be honest, they were a bit of a pain in the backside um, <laughs> where, you know, you'd go up a tree, you'd say, listen, it's a rare bird. So I'm going to go up the tree. I'm going to weigh, measure, ring the chicks. I will bring them down so you can see what I'm doing. I'll talk to you constantly, but I'm only doing it once. And they'd say, yeah, fine. So I do all of this. I go up the tree, get the chicks, bring them down, weigh, measure, ring, talk to the camera, explain what I was doing take them back up, get the rope and say, okay, let's go. And of course, in, invariably, the director would say, is there any chance you can do that once more? <laughs> you know, so, uh, and, and that didn't go down well. You know, when you're up on a hill in the middle of nowhere and there's only a handful of you, uh, uh, the language wasn't, well, was pretty blue. Um, so, I, so I never wanted to go into telly, um, but I could see that my career in the RSPB was coming to an end because I, I refused. I was not going to work behind a desk. And um, the only offers around were from BBC Wales and Welsh Telly, S4C, to do some wildlife programmes. Initially, I said no, but then I thought, well, there's no work around. And by that time, I was married. We had a little baby. And I thought, well, you've got to 
you've got to find work somewhere. So I started doing TV programs and that was 22 years ago, I think now, something like that. And, and I have to say, it's been a hoot. It's been the best thing I've, I've ever done. Oh, you can see it in, in the shows you do. Yeah, but basically, if there's a programme on Welsh wildlife, there's at least a 50% chance you're going to be in it, if it's Welsh wildlife, that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's been a sort of resurgence. You know, what's happened yeah. is more money pumped out to the regions. So you see a lot of wildlife programmes produced in Scotland. You see quite a few more produced in Wales now. And yeah, there's blue chip ones, there's presenter-led ones, which is nice. I'm I'm happy with it because it shows that wildlife is on the agenda and anything we can do to raise that agenda and to get people to to appreciate their local wildlife. And I think that's key. It's great to show programmes from the Serengeti, from the Great Barrier Reef, but but it's far more important to show people what's on their doorstep because it's only then they know what it is, they recognise it, they appreciate it, only then will they fight to look after it. Yeah, and that I mean that's something that both Neil and I are you know, also really passionate about only tend to be the smaller bit, smaller species. I think that's the one thing that really comes across though, when you, you know, when you watch a program that you're presenting. And I think probably that knowledge and your background from working with the RSPB for all those years is that knowledge comes through as passion as well. And I think that makes, for me anyway, being a scientist and and being involved in in nature and and that, it makes for a much more interesting um, and engaging program because I think that passion just comes across so much well, more. I'm, I'm not a TV presenter, really, to be bluntly honest. You know, you, you've got presenters who are fantastic at what they do. And, and probably the best in my book is somebody like Chris Packham. You know, his, his knowledge, his, his memory is just absolutely amazing. You can give him a few lines and give him two seconds to look at them and he will reproduce them in a way that, you know, even someone like myself, someone thick as I am, can understand Whereas I I don't do scripts and all that kind of stuff. You know, it just stick me there. And if there's an adder or if there's a Welsh clearwing moth or if there's a goshawk, fine, I I can talk about that. But just don't give me a script because I'm rubbish at all that stuff. I I, I think it makes such a refreshing change possibly because i'm exactly the same <laughs> same you put a script in front of me i'm too busy trying to remember the exact order the words are going to be going to be in he says garbling his sentence <laughs> but i'm better at <laughs> just thinking it at what it means and then and then saying it but yeah that, that came out really badly i just totally disproved my own point but, <laughs> but i mean there's so much we can talk about We're, but the main reason we asked you on was to talk about uh, the issues you have in the uk with bird of prey persecution or raptor persecution whatever you want to call it and there is a Unfortunately, a strong link to grouse moors with this. You've worked with hen harriers quite a lot. That's one reason we contacted you, because you obviously have a background with hen harriers. Could you summarise what the issues are there? Yeah, it, it's an interesting one, you know, because um, social media is really useful, but it, mm. it, it's it's also not useful. Um, it can be used for good. It can be used for bad on both sides, really. And I think one of the things that we as conservationists have to make sure is that we get our facts right. And with hen harrier persecution, yeah, they are persecuted, they're shot, they're trapped in their hundreds every year. And and I mean, there's no argument about that. I know, you know, Basque and the Moulin Keepers Association will argue and say, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? We all know that it goes on. And as I say, it's literally hundreds of birds every year. But what you've got to remember is that there are some parts of its range in the UK where that doesn't go on. The Isle of Man being one and Wales being another one. Um, Northern Ireland actually being another one as well. 
we don't have the levels of persecution that you experience in places like the Peak District, the Forest of Boland, the North York Moors, uh, the Lead Hills, south of Glasgow, parts of eastern Scotland, especially Aberdeenshire. We don't have those levels of persecution. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I monitor, I, I help monitor a population in North Wales. And this year we had 11 breeding pairs, uh, two failed due to predation by foxes, one failed due to the weather, but eight were successful in producing 24 young. And that's mm. a pretty good year. That's just one patch. The Welsh population is probably somewhere in the region of about 50 pairs. But we do have two moorland areas where we know that in one area, uh, two hen harriers have gone missing in the last three years. Uh, I will name it. It's Ruaban Moor near Wrexham. Uh, and there's one other moorland that's come to light in recent years where I've suspected that birds of prey were going missing there. And this year we've got better evidence, but not hard evidence that a pair of hen harriers went missing there. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, these are the only two areas of moorland in Wales where they are trying to resurrect driven grouse shooting. So that tells you something. Now, elsewhere, you, you know you've got huge problems. Uh, parts of the Peak District, as I say, the North York Moors, probably the worst area in the whole mm. of England, if not the whole of the UK. Yes, and the Bermuda happens, Triangle for birds of prey, isn't it? It is, they say. it is, yeah. And it's not just hen harriers. You know, it'll be peregrines, uh, goshawks, all kinds of things will go missing. Short-eared owls even, uh, mm. you know, which is ridiculous. But it, what happens is that basically, if you want to produce a hugely productive grouse moor where you got very wealthy clients going up there to pay to go and shoot grouse, then you order your gamekeepers that you do not want a single bird of prey on that moor. You don't want them nesting there. You certainly don't want a bird of prey to fly over the moor on a shooting day. So you do whatever you are told, whatever you can to make sure that there are no birds of prey on that moor. And that's what goes on. They can deny it as much as they like. But, you know, I, I, I've worked in the business. I've worked on hen areas since I was 11 years old. That's what goes on. But as I say, it's nowhere near that bad in Wales. And we only have two problem moorland areas. It says it all really, doesn't it? I've got some figures here uh, from the RSPB. So, you know, Moreland Association will probably dispute them anyway, but there we go. In 2018, there were 87 confirmed raptor persecution incidents, but only one conviction. 72% of 58 hen harriers satellite tagged in a government study were killed or most likely killed on or near a grouse moor. And that's between 2007 and 2017. And 67% of those convicted of raptor persecution related offences since 1990 have been gamekeepers. So there's a few stats there that don't look very good for driven grouse moors. You are right. And, and, and one of the things that's thrown at people, I heard a debate between Chris Packham and Ian Botham. Um, and Ian Botham said, you know, where's the evidence? You know, when was the last time anyone was convicted of shooting hen harriers? Well, there are several pieces of video showing masked men on a driven grouse moor going up shooting birds. But of course, it goes on in these isolated areas. You can't have undercover people up there all the time. You can't have the police out there constantly day in, day out. It's going back to the feudal system. You know, they know they can get away with it as long as they just shoot the bird. They bury the carcass, gather the feathers. There's virtually no evidence at all. The bird has just disappeared. 
And this argument that satellite tag as well, you know, the satellite is broken down. That's a load of rubbish. That's an absolute load of rubbish. You know, when when you consider, I think you've got the exact facts, but mm. is it six percent of satellite tags on Montague's Harriers failed? Seventy-eight yeah. percent of tags on hen harriers failed in inverted commas. You know, so that that speaks volumes. But getting a conviction, not just because it goes on behind closed doors, but also because often it's extremely difficult, even with all the evidence. I know of several cases where the RSPB has gathered evidence and their evidence has been thrown out of court because they were told that they gathered the evidence illegally, that they trespassed on land to video the keeper shooting the bird, which is ridiculous, you know, but the law sometimes is an ass and um, that's just the way that it is at the moment. Yeah, so some of these uh, gamekeepers get suspiciously good lawyers that have cost a lot of money. There's a classic couple of cases in Scotland, wasn't there, a few years ago, yeah. where the RSVB put cameras on the nest to see what was happening. You know, they've been predated by foxes and stuff like that. Well, at least that was the official reason. I think we all knew one reason why they put it on there. And they dismissed it because they'd, uh, was it something along the lines of they put down surveillance equipment without a license and clearance from the police which would have told the gamekeepers where they were yeah, um, exactly and, exactly. So, as I said, and someone know, said you know if someone had keyed the judge's car would he still thrown it out you know they filmed yeah. it without permission the law is sometimes you know it, it makes you wonder and I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of the police I guess I'm very good friends in the police some of them are wildlife liaison officers and they do a fantastic job but I've come across one incident in Wales you know where I phoned the police and asked this local sergeant to go in with me on an area where we had photographs taken by a walker of pole traps put up on pheasant pens. When I reached the police, the sergeant came with me. We went onto the estate. Every single pole trap had gone. Weeks afterwards, I found out that that sergeant's brother was the keeper on that estate. Oh, you know, I, I mean, bear in mind, I'm going back 30 odd years now, but we know that it goes on. You know, we we, we know that that kind of thing uh, goes on. But as I say, I really don't want to shed a bad light on the police uh-huh. because they are well, they're often working with their hands tied behind their backs. You know, oh, they, they, they really are. They, they get abuse from certain groups for daring to suggest that there's any crime that goes on sometimes it's a and they're massive yeah. and we won't get into politics but they're massively under resourced and the wildlife well i don't want to get, get too political but this government tried to shut down the national wildlife crime unit which says it all really mm. um, i'll tell you what no let's get let's get yeah. political here i can maybe you can but mm. this is the worst government i've ever seen um, it really is by miles <laughs> me. I have ever seen. If you think about it, though, who are we up against here mm. on this issue? We're up against the huge landowners. We're up against very wealthy people. Quite a few of those are in the House of Lords. Quite a few of those are best friends with serving MPs, with serving cabinet members. So while this government is in power, and believe me, I'm not pro-Labour, I'm not pro-Liberal, I'm not pro any of them. I, I just don't like politicians. But the lot we've got in at the moment, you're not going to get anywhere with this issue. Well, if you want to sum that up, Ian Botham, who you mentioned earlier, being pro-grouse, I've got a little bit more on it being Botham later, uh, he was made a, a peer. So whereas you know, most people are given a knighthood as thank you very much, he now has power to veto laws. Yeah. Ian Botham, yeah. the cricketer. Well, what the... Mm. 
<laughs> I know, I know. But th- this government stinks. You know, this government absolutely stinks. Boris Johnson's brothers become a peer. Some Russian tycoon who bought his British citizenship has become a peer. It's it it really is. It absolutely stinks. The whole system stinks. Well, we could go off on one on the planning changes, but uh, I think we'll stick. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try stick on the subject again because I'll I'll be worse than you, you know. So. Yeah, he, he um, really will be. Trust me. Will be. <laughs> like talking about like the bird of prey persecution, that was something interesting that I managed to pick up. And obviously this year in particular, there's been we've had the lockdown, which seems to have been really bad for for birds of prey and. I mean, the RFPB have said they've been overrun by reports of birds of prey being illegally killed since the lockdown. You know, and I, I don't, you know, whether whether that's organised groups, you know, they think specific birds of prey have been targeting, including the hen harriers, peregrines, red kites, goshawks, you know, and it's the vast majority of these have been linked with shooting estates or land management. But it seems to be that they've been orchestrated coincide, you know, with basically going into lockdown all these people that you may have had out on the moors walking or doing surveys or what, you know, just people out enjoying them. You haven't then got the eyes on the moors when the entire country is in lockdown. But these people are now using that to go out and, you know, shoot and trap birds of prey. Yeah, but you you mustn't forget that going up onto the moor to shoot protected species is considered a vital job under this government. You know, it's absolutely yeah. vital that they go up and do that. I, I just find it ridiculous, you know. So yeah. going up on the moor to so-called manage that moor is, is is a vital job. But having people going out walking in, in the fresh air was considered illegal for several months. You know, you could have been yeah. prosecuted for it. So, no, it's... Um, it's quite laughable. I, I had an incident here. Uh, it would have been probably April, I think, late April, where I had a phone call late at night on a Sunday night by a lady who'd found two dead red kites. She thought they'd been shot. Unfortunately, she put this on Facebook. So by the time my two boys and I got there, it was almost midnight. We had torches and we walked around and where she'd left the two bodies, they'd gone. Yeah. But we, we searched and searched and we found another one. Mm. Uh, had it x-rayed and sure enough it was full of lead shot and and that wasn't on a, a keepered area whether it was pheasants whatever it wasn't so that was just some idiot with a gun I have no idea why they would shoot kites you know they're pretty innocuous birds they feed mainly on earthworms and beetles and carrion but they just thought well I'll take this opportunity I'll blast these three birds out of the sky and I suspect that's gone an awful lot this year not just organized shoots but mm. whenever some people and, and bear in mind I must emphasize here I'm not anti-shooting I used to as a kid when I grew up in Lake Vernon in mid Wales there we used to shoot at a 410 we shot rabbits we shot the odd pheasant but what we shot we ate um yeah took it home and ate and never ever interested in sort of killing anything else so uh, mm. uh, but I know of some shooters out there who were actually really really good conservationists and they are genuinely good and they're as fed up of all this illegal persecution as I am. So we, we must make sure we don't tar everybody with yeah. the same brush. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Completely agree with that. Completely yeah, agree. Um, um, although I wouldn't do it myself, I'm not anti-shooting. Some of my good friends are shooters. Some of the most knowledgeable people I know on wildlife shoot. But like yeah. you say, you know, they, they shoot for the pot. There oh. we go. I know some people are yeah. completely yeah. against shooting. And, I, you know, I can kind of see where they're coming from. But in personally, from a pragmatic point of view, that's not the way to think about it and some of these hunters know more than some of the people that are against shooting so i don't want to get too into deep into that <laughs> debate but 
Going back to the satellite tags, we had a question from someone called Dan Connors, and he asked, I'm curious as to how much of the persecution he believes is directly targeted at these birds and how much of it is where their collateral damage e.g. other animals being targeted with poison which are then eaten by raptors i think he's talking about you know rodent poisoning killing owls and stuff like that and he's also asked about the failure rate of trackers which we've kind of covered mostly and he says i often hear about birds disappearing in commas, on or near grouse moors but never about them disappearing elsewhere does it happen and we don't hear about it or does it just not happen well i i it it will happen but very very rarely is the simple answer to that they have had the odd bird where the satellite's gone wrong but what you get just before it starts to break down it starts giving very odd signals so you can tell when your satellite is about to break down what's happened in the 78 percent of incidents is that the satellite, you know, one second is working, the next second it's not. So it's either been trampled on, it's been thrown on a fire, whatever it is, you know, it's been destroyed. And you mustn't forget that one notable satellite tagged mm. bird. Uh, was it an eagle or a harrier? I don't remember now. That I think uh, it was a harrier. Uh, that the, the, the harrier that ended up flying in a straight line along a main road, along the coast, going uh, eastwards out of Edinburgh, I think it was. So um, either either that Harrier was following the white lines or it was in the back of a Land Rover having yeah. been shot, you know. So, uh, no, there's there's plenty of evidence. You know, you can twist it as much as you like, but there's plenty of evidence to to show that, you know, the vast majority of these birds that so-called disappear have been illegally killed on or near grouse moors. Um, that's what goes on. So basically, when they have picked up dead bodies with the tag still working, haven't they, in some cases? Um, there was one, I think it was off the Isle of Man, I think it, it crashed and It flew to Isle of Man and couldn't get back again or something like that. And they actually managed to recover that when it washed up to the shore. But that one you mentioned, I think what happened was the satellite tag stopped transmitting and they must have put it in a metal box or something to stop it transmitting. But they didn't realise there was a mobile phone backup on it working off the towers and that showed a pattern going up the road up towards a port town and then suddenly this hen harrier reappeared in the sea and they obviously got a mate to stick it on a boat and take it out to sea this is the limp some of these people are going to quite extraordinary really yeah yeah but it shows you what goes on you know so for yeah. them to deny it is ridiculous but what's been nice actually mm. the mm. last couple of months i've had two or three shooters publicly say enough's enough you know, mm. unless we stop this now, then probably most shooting will be banned. And they are right. They, they're cutting their own throats in the long term. They'll flourish under this government. I know that much. But, you know, it will change. Things will change. And there's an upwelling of feeling now amongst people. Enough's enough. You know, we, we're, we're killing some of our most majestic wildlife. And also we're mismanaging the uplands, you know, with flooding with with pete's a big issue we are mismanaging mm. the uplands so it will come to an end unfortunately a lot of wildlife will die between now and we 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 finally win this battle but finally win the battle we certainly will even with resistance it seems to be the public opinion at least seems to be starting to go in the right direction but that i mean they are kicking back a bit we had well mentioning ian botham again we had you forgot about the birds appeared a few years ago didn't we yeah yeah uh, they, they were a bit of a joke. Uh, basically, RCB, I think it's after RCB suggested or strongly suggested that grouse hunting had to be licensed to try and stop some of this persecution and mismanagement. And I've got a list here of some of the things that they had on their website. They criticised the RSPB for, among other things, uh, not using Muscovy ducks in their publicity because they're ugly, 
not looking out for chickens and their welfare. They accused them, this is the interesting one, they accused them of hiding the fact that they control predators when the RSVP publish an update online every year of exactly how many creatures they've killed. But the one they, they got the Telegraph and the Mail to run a scandal, in inverted commas, story, was that they, they claim that the RSVP only spend 24% on conservation, which was the just the spending on reserves but they ignored all the money spent on campaigning which when you know they only have i think they worked out is it 0.5 percent of all the land is reserves or something so you've got to you know campaign for the other stuff and uh, wildlife friendly farming schemes research which is arguably one of the most important and i'm totally biased but i think the most important thing is education um, mm. Although that's, that's the field I work in, you're loaded. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I'm totally biased, but uh, I could tell that. Yeah, yeah. But you know, so on a serious note, it is quite important. Maybe not quite as important as reserves, but they're basically making out that they only spend a quarter of their money on conservation. And yeah, the RCB can take some stick for various things, but it was disingenuous. I think the words used. I was going. I'd just say a load of rubbish. But yeah, and Ian Botham, who has obviously have friends in the Telegraph because he writes for them, and the Daily Mail, I believe. It was at least partly owned by a Grousemore owner at one point uh, at this time. And both of them, he, he went onto Twitter every so often and was attacking anyone that criticised any of this stuff. But he basically said, a scientist should stay out of the countryside because they don't understand it. Um, and I don't remember, <laughs> is it Radio 4 he went on, I forget who the presenter was, it was someone fairly well known. And he was going on to talk about their brilliant schemes because no grouse or pheasants are wasted. But suddenly for this scheme, they had loads of spare ones that they were going to turn into ready meals for the people in food banks so for everyone you bought they'd have another ready meal and then the the host of the show asked him about persecution on grouse moors and he started off on an absolutely crazy rant about chris packham and ambush journalism and and she says look i'm, I'm sorry i'm just asking the question people will want to know that's not why i'm on the show and the co-host had to intervene it's you know quite what, though, extraordinary. The, the longer they use ian botham as a mouthpiece yeah. the better it is because the man comes over as an yeah. idiot every single time which is a real shame because he claimed yeah. that uh, the highest density of breeding lapwing in the UK was found on a driven grouse moor and that the work could be done by the BTO. Immediately after the programme, the BTO mm. got in touch and said, we've never heard of this. None of our surveyors have been up on that moor. <laughs> you know, so so it's just it's just made up stuff. It's a lot of rubbish, you know, it really is. Yeah. No, I'm not going to mention them because they're just a waste of space, but there, there's a replacement. The Molland Association have disappeared off social media and this other group have turned up um, and they've attacked Chris Packham. They did a blog post on how nasty animal rights people are because all us people against bird of prey being shot are animal rights people. And their very next blog post was calling Mark Avery fat. And then they targeted uh, Stephen Moss with basically Stephen Moss said red kites are buzzers are doing well. So they then said he said all bird of prey are doing well. Why are they moan about bird of prey being shot? And then they released a video which had loads of copyrighted material in that to backtrack and apologise. But they're actually just shooting themselves in the foot. And I can, like you say, some of the people that shoot are just getting embarrassed by it all now. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a comedy of errors in many ways. But what we've got to remember is that it's also very serious because in the meantime, mm. a lot of our most majestic birds are disappearing. You know, So uh, I would say it's laughable, but it's not laughable. Yeah. It's a very yeah. serious issue. And it's a disgusting issue to think that this is going on in the UK in the 21st century. Yeah. It mm. belongs in Victorian times, you know. The thing is, it's not just, you know, obviously, yeah, it's the raptors uh, that are suffering, but it's it's going to throw out ecosystems as a whole. You know, it's going to have such a 
wider impact you know the thought of I mean just recently I've lived in Froome for I don't know seven or eight years now at least and in the last maybe 12 18 months yeah I regularly see red kites over my house or you know when I'm out and about over Froome which is something I never honestly thought I would see I mean we get the buzzards I had a close encounter with a sparrow hawk as it nearly flew into my leg in the back garden but I never thought I would see red kites here in in Froome in Somerset and the thought that yeah people could actually even do that to these incredible birds it's just horrific to be honest yeah it is it's um such a shame it really is such a shame but but we we also must rejoice in the fact that exactly what you said you know some of our birds of prey are actually doing quite well buzzards are doing well red kites are doing well hobbies are doing well you know so we must rejoice in that as well but at the same time we must lament the the demise of a lot of them and also battle against it do everything we possibly can I think we'll go over another question. A chap called Bob Sharper has said, Hi, Yolo. Would it be possible to have too high of a population of, say, red kites? Yeah, this is an interesting one. This is something that mm. comes up a lot here in yeah. Wales, especially with the red kite feeding stations we've got. Places like um, Gigrin Farm near Ryder in Mid Wales and Nantararian near Abrastwith. You know, you, it's, it's in winter, it's nothing to see maybe 400, maybe even 500 red kites in the air at once in winter, which for someone like me who's been involved in red kite conservation since the early 80s is nothing short of miraculous. Can there be too many? Well, not really, because if you think of what red kites eat, there was um, some interesting research carried out in mid Wales here by Peter Davis and Peter Walters Davis back in the 1970s and early 80s. And that showed that the vast majority of their diet is actually earthworms, Mm. other invertebrates and carrion. That is the vast majority of what they eat. At certain times of the year, uh, they will then start feeding, to a large extent, some pairs on juvenile corvids. A lot of young magpies, a lot of young rooks particularly, a lot of young carrion crows as well, because they're easy prey then. But they're not designed to pounce on and catch things like fully grown pheasants or even rabbits and hares. You know, people say I've had an argument with... An individual who said, oh, we got no hares here now because of the kites. Well, the kite isn't a powerful bird. It genuinely, I've handled dozens and dozens of red kites and it's a really weak bird of prey. It's nearly all wings. It's not a particularly heavy bird either. It's about, it's about a, a thousand grams, something like that. So it's nearly all feathers and wings. A buzzard is more powerful and heavier. Um, so, no, there's there's no danger, really, with having good populations of red kites. And what we must never forget is that I see lots of kites now, but it's a recovering population. It's regaining ground that it lost over the last four or five hundred years or so. And the role of the kite in the Middle Ages was the role of black kites now in places like Cairo, Mumbai. It was a scavenger. In a lot of the towns, you know, as, as, as late as the 1700s, there were still red kites scavenging in and around London, picking up rodents, picking up carrion, whatever was dumped on the middens. And that's what these birds will often do. So to say that, oh, well, there are too many of them now is, is a load of rubbish. And I'm not saying that that's what is being said here, but I wouldn't worry about there being too many 
red kite. So we, we've got a long, long way to go before they even regain the population we had four, five hundred years ago. Sometimes it comes up with sparrowhawks as well. I've spoken to people and say, oh, well, the population's steep going up and up and up. Well, two problems with that statement is, as you said, the recovering population. And the other flip side is sparrowhawk numbers are actually declining again now. So, yeah. yeah. And of course, there's all the research done in mm. Witham Woods. You're looking at the populations of great tits and other small woodland passerines and the population of sparrowhawks. And as the sparrowhawk population recovered from an all-time low in the late 50s, the early 60s, because of DDT and DDE, all these organochlorine pesticides, well, the small bird population hasn't declined. You know, so you've got to go with the science. You've got to go with the science. I mean, we could go on for all the I'm just going to whiz through the with the grouse more. So I want to get that topic out of the way now because it's too depressing. But yeah. <laughs> there's a well, few, few other issues we've with it. I mean, it really. you know, yeah. There's, there's, yeah. there's nothing more to add because you'll have no. one side saying yeah. what I've said and you're always going to have your Ian Bothams and what have you arguing mm. against it. And I suspect with an issue like that, never the twain shall meet, I suspect. Because we've, we've mentioned the flooding. I don't think we've mentioned the literally truckloads of mountain hares have been killed, although we've mentioned that in a previous podcast about them hopefully being licensed and hopefully they won't give out licenses like sweeties. And there's all the, like we've mentioned, the snaring, well, the illegal snaring, but there's also legal snaring that catches ringoozles and all sorts of horrible things to be killed, basically. And the burning and the CO2, they burn the moors. But we've covered the bird of prey persecution. I think I'll save that for another day, I think. the uh, proper <laughs> stuff. Let's get on to something nicer, much more positive. Let's talk about Maya Bambrick, who is a 17-year-old. She's a wildlife photographer. I've, I met her earlier this year at Rain and Marshes. Uh, she knows her stuff on both wildlife and photography. I don't know if you've seen, Yola, before I start, that she started a campaign to try and get schools to make more wildlife gardens on their grounds. Yeah, which is brilliant. Well done, Maya. She's a remarkable <laughs> young lady and well done her, because if every single school did that, that would make a huge difference, a, an enormous difference to the biodiversity of the whole of the UK, really. So well done, Maya. And it makes people like me doing outreach's job a lot easier too. So I'm totally behind. And it, so. and it bring, brings that added element of education in as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm, I mean, I grew up handling things, you know, and it, it, mm. it's not the done thing. Now it's, oh, don't handle that. That's not the done thing. Well, that's how I got hooked. You know, picking up newts out, turning them over, looking at the fiery belly, holding golden ringed dragonflies and uh, giant horn tails, you know, like a, a oh. wood wasp, giant wood wasp, and explaining to people it isn't a sting, it's a thing to lay eggs, it's called an ovipositor. That's how I grew up. And I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that if you want to get kids hooked, They've got to be able to touch things within reason. Obviously, you don't stick your hand in the mouth of a badger or a you. <laughs> but within reason, it's so important that children can go out to you, stick a poplar hawk moth on their nose and take a photo for them and all this kind of stuff. And that is what will get kids hooked. And that, yeah. I, I completely agree with you, Yellow, because it's I mean, that's how I learned as well. And that's how I got completely hooked. I mean, my, my dad used to take me out uh, with my brother, actually, on Sunday afternoons. We would do small mammal surveys at one of the local reserves and we would be fully involved with this. We'd get to, you know, look at them and weigh them and and really kind of get to grips with them. We'd get to, you know, hold stuff and touch stuff and go looking and. And it got me hooked for life. And that's why I do what I do now, because I completely fell in love with it when I was a little girl and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And, you know, I now run, I help out with my uh, wildlife trust group when we do the walks and that. And, you know, on some of them, we have 
normally our amphibian and reptile one it's it's probably half of that is is children you know grandparents bringing children along or whatever and you see that you know they're picking up bloody nose beetles and they want to get so involved and we we actually have um, someone from the amphibian and reptile group for somerset with us and he'll you know catch an adder and he'll he'll give the 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 chance to see it close up and really see how beautiful these things are and it gets them so involved and you just see their little faces light up and that's what we need it is yeah absolutely i i've I've got a little story i'll I'll speed it up as much as i can but many years ago and i was invited to go and open this local nature reserve and in the big scheme of things you know it wasn't the serengeti it wasn't even skomer island but it was a local community nature reserve and it was a cracking little place and and the locals had come together off their own back they'd built footpaths dug a little ponds in there and they asked me would i open it and the whole school came down small rural school (laughs) about 60 kids came down so we walked along it was september time and we found an elephant hawk moth caterpillar feeding on rose bay willow herb and we picked it up you know and we we sort of tapped it so that it reared up like an elephant's trunk and i showed why it was called an elephant hawk moth and by the time 60 kids had tapped it the poor thing was shattered so we (laughs) put it back into the willow herb and i said always put it back where it was you know we walked on i looked in this willow didn't find anything there was a chiff chaff knocking about and then i had a little call off this girl she goes sir sir and i went back and she said what's this and blow me she'd found the caterpillar of an eyed hawk moth it was only the second one i'd ever seen and its young eyes her eyes were better than mine and I said, Megan, I said, that's fantastic. Well done, you. And everybody gathered round and I explained what it was and I showed them a picture of what it would grow into eventually. And then I said, OK, Megan, you found this. You go and put it back exactly where it was. And she did that. And then we walked away and it, it all came to an end. And they thanked me. I thanked them. They went back to the school and the headmistress turned around and came back to me. And she said, that was brilliant. She said, not me, not at all. But the fact that Megan, the girl who'd found that hawk moth, she was one of those kids who didn't quite fit in in school. It's got a good Mm. sporting reputation. It's kind of produced a couple of rugby players who've played for Wales. Megan is not very sporty. We have a thing called the nice Stetherford in Wales where you sing and dance and recite. It's a big thing. Megan wasn't really into all that. So she didn't quite fit in. She wasn't one of the cool kids. But she said that walking back to the school, the cool kids wanted to walk with Megan because she had (laughs) found that amazing eyed hawk moth caterpillar. So you never know, you know, that that one thing might make her life in school easier, but it might also turn Mm. her on to wildlife. And who knows? In future, Megan might be a local councillor. She might be a local MP. She might even be the Prime Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. You never know. So it's so important, you know, these little things, getting kids involved, getting them hooked on these things is just so important. I think it's it's so lovely when you can kind of have that. I think for, for all of us that are in situations, where, you know, myself, Neil, and yourself, Yolo, I mean, I feel it's kind of our responsibility to help with that a little bit. And very, very good friend of mine. She bought a copy of my book when it came out a, a couple of years ago. And it's it's all about small things. So it's all about plants, invertebrates, amphibians and reptiles and what you can find locally to you. And she said during lockdown, 
they've moved house they've had that book out with the boys they've been in the garden they've created a little wildlife pond they're growing a little wildlife patch and they go out with the book they sit in the garden and everything and to me that just completely warms my heart and even though she's my best friend you know I know that she means every single word she sends me pictures of the boys picking up ladybirds cleaning out the pond and I think it's just it's just amazing yeah yeah it it is and it's just so so important because I think you know when I was a kid my mum and dad and my tide granddad particularly were very encouraging tide was brilliant he'd take me out and show me how to find nests how to tickle fish with my hand all this kind of stuff and we've lost two generations doing that and the one good thing I think that might come out of this uh, lockdown is the fact that a lot of people have connected with nature for the first time. I've Mm. seen this year more parents with kids out walking the lanes and I've stopped and said, listen, come over here, come over this. There's a tree bumblebee nest here at the base of this ash tree. Stand still and watch them or come and have a look at, you know, whether it's red campion or wood anemones and dandelions and 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 why they're so important for the pollinators and it might be red-tailed bumblebees whatever it is and i'm hoping that a little bit of that seed that's been planted will stay there so that next spring they'll say dad granddad mum can we go out again like we did last year you know so Mm. it'd be wonderful Mm. if a little bit if just a, a small percentage of the people who've had to go out into their gardens, who've had to go out onto the country lanes, their local park this year, did it again next year and the year after that. And I think it's something, you know, I don't know if it's something that you've noticed, but I know Neil and I have talked about this before. I've seen a lot of a lot of posts, be it from friends, you know, followers on social media, getting in touch, people that listen to the show as well. The number of people that have put ponds in their garden during lockdown yes to me yeah. is massively encouraging i mean i'm i'm a lover of frogs i apps i'm crazy about my frogs as neil will testify to mm-hmm. <laughs> and to me it's so encouraging to see the number of people that have said Do you know what we want to put a wildlife garden in and it doesn't have to be big but the number that have gone in this year and it's really really encouraging because we've lost so many of our garden ponds where people are putting in fake grass and paving everything but you know maybe that is one of the good things that comes out of lockdown that people have started to appreciate what they could attract to their own gardens and it doesn't matter how big or small it is and that also helps create those little wildlife corridors it does yeah massively helps our wildlife and and I, i tell everyone if you can do one thing in your garden just one thing it'd be put a pond in your yeah. pond makes such a big difference. And and I spend, we've got a pond here. It's about maybe two and a half metres by a metre and a half. So it's not huge, but it's got, you know, it's got uh, cuckoo flower bulrushes. It's got marsh marigold, one end of it. It's full, full of palmate newts, all kinds of, you know, great diving beetle, whirligig beetles, various species, damselflies, dragonflies come. I spend probably several weeks a year just standing looking at it with a cup of tea in my hand and really enjoying it just watching what the newts are doing when the courtship is on you know the male fans his pheromones towards the female with his tail or the whirligig beetles chasing each other around it's just it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating and and it's different every single day yeah i mean i I have no me neither (laughs) i mean we have we i only have a little pond mine's not even a meter it's it's small but the frogs breed in it every year and this year when we ripped up the decking and planted native wildflowers and grasses 
yeah every day I was out there I'd have one little one little frog and he would sit there and he would be there every single day and I used to just go out and sit and spend five minutes just watching him and being with you know just sitting and watching the frogs in my pond every day and it just it, I mean it brings me so much joy I mean you know it, it's it's just amazing I think it's vital as well because I think we'll find it playing a more important role in future not not just ponds not just gardens but wildlife and the outdoors because of mental health issues and because mm. of physical health issues you know we're told that two out of three people now are overweight well one of the easiest ways to tackle that is to get people to walk more we're told that you know mental health issues uh, are, are on the increase hugely so following lockdown well one thing that'll help it's not the cure all but it'll certainly help is getting people outside getting them to to be able to identify what's out there i was watching a leaf cutter bee the other day cutting the roses in my garden what an amazing thing mm-hmm. what an amazing thing and earlier in the year i'd watched red mason bees you know building these little cells in these tubes that i've put up for them and it's just fabulous it's just you you couldn't write a better novel you just couldn't and as long as you understand what's going on as long as you understand what these bees are doing and understand the role that they play in our lives as pollinators you 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 just can't go wrong and and, and i think we'll see more of uh, what's going on in shetland now where doctors are actually pr- prescribing walks rather than giving people antidepressants and all these pills they're saying okay Every day for half an hour, you have to go out and walk mm. and it's working. You know, it's a simple solution. It's what we used to do. And we, we must grasp that and just get people out half an hour a day, sit in your garden, sit in your local park. Just you don't have to look at anything. Just stop, look, listen, smell. Just take it all in, recharge your batteries then go back and do whatever it was you were doing before, looking after the kids at home, going into the office, whatever. But it's so important for our health as well as for the wildlife. Yeah, it's, it's one thing like Neil and I did the you know, several episodes during lockdown, didn't we, Neil, where we we were mm. actively encouraging people to go out and we would set little, like little mini projects, go and see what plants you can find growing out of walls, for example. Or, you know, let us know what you're seeing on your walk and trying to encourage people to just get out and enjoy it and see what's in their local patch as well. Yeah, a bit of good feedback on that as well, which was quite nice. Well, we did a nice big tangent there and I wasn't involved hardly, so that was quite good. It's <laughs> usually me that does it. But going back to Maya's question <laughs> about 10 minutes ago, she said, Hiya, a couple of questions for the fantastic Yolo Williams. A great inspiration to me. What's your favourite wildlife experience so far and how do we encourage schools to create wildlife areas? Do you think a campaign in collaboration with wildlife orgs is needed or resources like eco schools enough? Yeah, she you can tell she's extremely bright because of the yep. uh, questions. She asks very difficult questions. <laughs> I'm glad you're answering it, not me. Yeah, she's she's really is an in- inspiration. And when you see young people like that coming through and Indy Green is another one, a mate of mine. I see him on Mull often. You know, he lives in the Nottingham area. He's a good lad as well. And, okay. and when you see people like that coming through, you're thinking, do you know what? There is hope. There really is hope. Um, right. Stop rambling, y'all, and answer Maya's question. <laughs> um, my favourite wildlife experience. Well, I was going to say seeing orcas for the first time when we filmed it for Spring Watch about six or seven years ago. But there's a better one than that. And I've got to go back to 1974 
when I was 11 years old and I found my first nesting pair of hen harriers. And I used to cycle about seven miles, leave the bike and then walk about three or four miles up onto the moors. And I remember sitting down. I knew a pair of harriers had nested in that valley somewhere the year previously. So I walked up onto the moor. It would have been mid-May, mid to late May, sat down in the heather. I had an old pair of Frank Nipple 8 by 30 binoculars. I remember them. They weren't very good, but they were good enough. And all of a sudden, after about a three-hour wait, I watched this phantom, this grey phantom, come low over the heather, over the brow. And I could see, even with my binoculars, that he was carrying a vole. And then suddenly he did this high-pitched whistle. He called the female off the nest. She came up. She flipped underneath him. They did a food pass. She took the vole. She circled around. She went to eat it. And then once she'd eaten it, she then circled around, stretched her wings, landed in a patch of rushes and took a bit of rush back to the nest. And I danced off that moor. I literally danced off that moor. I still remember every second of that experience, even though that was 46 odd years ago, whatever it is. I still remember every second of that. So that still rates there as my best wildlife experience ever. And as for the second question, I think it's a brilliant campaign to get every school to try to create a wildlife garden. I think with things like this, I think we need to get influential organisations involved. And I would go with, say, the wildlife trusts all over the UK. You know, they've got members who can help. They've got volunteers who can pop in to help the schools as well. And I would do it in association with somebody like that. You you need an organisation that's got representatives uh, near every single school in the UK. And I think if there's a big thrust supported by famous people, Chris Packham, of course, is the obvious one. He's a fantastic campaigner. I think we can get this done. And even if at the end of it, we've got 50% of schools to have a really cool wildlife garden, you know, that is brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. So so all I can say, Maya, is power to your elbow. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. It is that, Yolo. I'll tell you what, what's mm. nice. I'm in my office up in the attic and I can hear Tony. I was kiwicking outside. Oh. Which is really oh. Mine have been really quiet. Well, I've only been back for three days, but they were really vocal before I went away in July, beginning mid-July. So I'm hoping they might start up again because we have we have two pairs around here. Yeah, I haven't heard mine. Yes. I'm, I'm, yeah. Well, I told you I was last time. I, you know, just north of Tilbury, and yeah, not made any noise. This, this, uh, it used to have a juvenile kit landing in my hedge, which was quite nice. But, uh, <laughs> never saw it, but I, I yeah. sort of would hear something flutter off, and and I would glimpse it. But I, I thought it was, I was convinced it's a long-eared because the habitat. But then I realised there's tawnies in the town a bit more, so yeah, it wasn't long-eared. But there we go. From Florentine, put a bell on your cat. I thought was a great piece of advice on spring watch. How come it's not compulsory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i alienate a lot of potential fans because i don't like cats i i'm a dog person when you see the damage that cats can do i i, I find it difficult to like cats at all big cats wild cats yes but domestic cats i can understand you know they, they they're brilliant companions especially for if you're quite lonely and if you're living in a flat you can't have a dog but yeah please 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 keep them indoors stick a bell on them you know, that's the least you could do. And, and it, it should be compulsory by law um, to have them 
maybe chipped to have a bell put on them, to have a name and address put on them as well. I'll give you an example where I live here. It's a small village. There's an old graveyard, uh, literally well, probably 200 meters away from me down the lane here. And a lady moved in, lovely lady moved in about seven years ago. She's got four cats. Mm. And within 12 months, the slow worms have all but disappeared from the old graveyard. You know, they, they, <laughs> they were always there. We always saw them. Um, and every time I went looking for them, all I saw there were cats. I got two cats coming to my garden because my dogs have died now. I got two cats that come into my garden, and one of them got perilously close to a dunnock nest uh, in a little bush that I've got here this year. Thankfully, didn't get them, but yeah, they can be extremely damaging cats, extremely damaging. So if we can minimise that as much as we possibly can, and one of the ways is stick a bell on your cat. Uh, Not well, getting I mean, any cats, arguments from us. Yeah, <laughs> cats is a is a podcast in itself, but. I'm glad you mentioned the slow worms because the amount of times I have heard people say that, that slow worms, they had slow worm population in their garden. Someone gets a cat or a few cats that come in their garden and they're gone. It, all the studies and all the commentary always seems to focus on mostly on the birds, a little bit on the mammals and they ignore the reptiles and amphibians. Well, that's, that's you know, <laughs> seems to be most of wildlife yeah. stuff anyway. And yeah, whereas a, a bird can fly in and most mammals are fairly ubiquitous so they can come back in anyway, reptiles in isolated habitats, I mean, you could argue that maybe they're they're struggling as it is and the cat's just finishing them off, which is fair enough, but it doesn't, doesn't make it right still in my book. But yeah, slowworms and there's a couple of urban nature reserves near me and since the cats have started invading the nature reserves, the, the lizard numbers and slower numbers, well, they're lizards as well, aren't they, slowworms, have just plummeted. It's yeah. a big problem with frogs as well. Yeah, um, you know so. I where we've been redoing our garden it, it's interesting because apparently cats really don't like massive barrel cacti succulents or anything spiky <laughs> or slate chippings interestingly and we're trying to make our garden so that the cats won't come through it because you know I, I know I've got frogs in my garden but talking to a lot of people you know that again they get somebody would move in they'd bring cats suddenly they their frog population almost dies out and you know, I've had people say to me that you know they've they've got cats and they keep bringing frogs in the house. I'm like, well, get rid of your cats then. Just... Yeah. <laughs> but it's you know that the like I said there's so much focus on cats and birds, but yeah. like Neil said, it, it is they they are decimating you know amphibian and reptile populations as well in gardens and elsewhere. Yeah, um, but it's... and it's it's not just cats actually. The, another big bugbear of mine. I know. Any shooters listening, we know what you're going to say. We know what you're going to say. Yeah. Gonna say. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, we release 50 million, 45 to 50 million of them in the UK. They're non-native. And the destruction they cause, there's a nature reserve on Anglesey. It's owned by the North Wales Wildlife Trust. And about 10 years ago, the farmer next door started putting down a couple of thousand pheasants. So, you know, it's not a massive shoot, not by standards I see around me here in Mid Wales. And all of a sudden, adder numbers plummeted because people don't realize pheasants will kill every single one of our amphibians and reptiles. It'll kill small mammals. It'll kill small birds. They're hugely destructive birds, pheasants. You know, they're hugely destructive birds. And if I applied to the UK government to release, you know, uh, 40 million mink, they go apoplectic. You know, they really would. I can yeah. imagine Boris's 
face going all red, you know, and stuff, and uh, yeah. the rant on and what have you. But pheasants, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, of course it is. They, they, I mean, I get more pheasants in my garden than I get cats, and there's no welcome for the pheasants either. No, it, it always makes me cringe. I saw something on Twitter the other day, someone boasting about their fantastic wild margin on their field. And first of all, it was filled with non-native flowers, but these pollinator flowers, and they were filming a pheasant walking through it, and it just made me cringe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it is. Oh, no. Oh, they, they, yeah, they're really bad. And, and yeah. when you watch a pheasant, it'll sprut around. You know, it'll dig up the yeah. leaves, dig up the undergrowth, looking for, for caterpillars, looking for pupae, looking for all kinds of insects all kinds of invertebrates they're over winter in the leaf litter i they i reckon if we got rid of every single pheasant in the uk overnight it would have a fantastically positive effect on a lot of our invertebrates a lot of our reptiles a lot of our amphibians as well it's funny because this came up when we were chatting to nick baker as well and it's a bugbear of mine because i've I'm part of my amphibian reptile group um, for my county and obviously I know quite a few herpetologists and you talk to any of them it's cats in the garden and pheasants in the countryside are the, after habitat destruction of course are yeah. among the biggest yeah. threats mm. so uh, pheasants that's another podcast <laughs> <It's> a, but <laughs> it un- unfortunately yeah. like the cat there's three issues that people don't realize about and cat well, a lot of people do realize but don't want to address um pheasants people just don't know i know some of my hunting friends were not aware of the damage they do and the other one dogs in ponds is another issue and none of them have had proper scientific research done on them really i mean we got bits and bobs and all of them but yeah it's a very incomplete picture so it's hard to i guess it's quite hard to legislate especially when you've got in all three of them you've got a rather strong body (laughs) resisting any yeah it's it's it's, for cats and dogs it's education as well i mean i'm 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 a huge dog person I, i i love my dogs and i used to have dogs but my dogs were always under control you know um and and i'd never think of taking them onto nature reserves you know that's a that's a big no-no i saw an incident on facebook recently where one i think it killed some great christa grebe chicks i think oh yeah that's um, fantastic yeah, that yeah so and, and you know that that is completely out of order and of course you can go there you can get angry with a dog but it's actually the owner you should be getting oh, angry yeah, with definitely. you know it's not mm. it's not idiotic dogs it's idiotic owners oh, so i worked in a country park for 10 years oh yeah and well, you, well, well i agree with you to all, some sure. extent yeah, on um on education. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that you could educate till the big crunch, the universe crashes together, and they still wouldn't listen to you. So I think we need a bit of that again. That's enough. That is a podcast we have actually got planned coming up. Is dogs uh, and wildlife. Good man. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we started attacking the controversial stuff now. So now now we've got a few listeners. We can afford to lose a few. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope everyone listens because we try to keep it balanced and scientific. I'm going to ask a question from my friend Daniel Bridge. He was the photographer for Essex Wildlife Trust when you opened the Ingrebourne Centre in Hornchurch. I don't know if you remember, Daniel. I do, uh, yeah. I, I had a fantastic day. Yeah, I, <laughs> do you know yeah. what? I had a fantastic day. It was a really good day. And I'd, I'd like to pop back down that way sometime soon because I went to university in East London. So I used to play rugby you know i'd play basildon i'd play as far as colchester south end so up towards hitching in hertfordshire so that whole area i used to know really well hornchurch country park is what the locals call it it was one of my haunts when i was growing up as well so i've got a special link to that place too he asked well first of all he mentions the fact that you stayed an extra hour and missed the rugby um he also brought up that england won so you didn't miss anything yeah uh, i think that was <laughs> I think that was the one time England beat Wales in the last 20 years, I think. Something yeah, like something that, like right? that. Yeah, um, yeah moving <laughs> swiftly on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
He said, can you ask him about about favourite places in... Oh, God, here we go. I'm going to mispronounce a Welsh word again. Sarad... Sir, oh, I'm, I'm making a mouth. That's the one. Exactly yeah, well done. That's what Keredigan. I said. That's what I said, yeah. <laughs> uh, favourite places in Ceredigion. Ceredigion is kind of southwest Wales, from Aberystwyth south as far as North Pembrokeshire. So it, it's a really cracking part of Wales. Oh, if I had to pick one, that's a difficult one, picking well, one. He's saying he's pick... staying near Lampeter. Yeah, so oh, any places wow. near there. You yeah. can pick more than one if you want. I'm sure it'd be grateful. I'll tell you, if you're staying near Lampeter, I would give Cors Caron or Trigaron Bog a go. It's it's a huge bog, raised bog, just to the northwest of the town of Trigaron, not far from Lampeter at all. Really cool place for reptiles, a lot of adders, a lot of viviparous lizards, a lot of slowworms there. Good place for dragonflies as well. And also pretty cool for things like red kites. Uh, you may well get the odd passage. In the hen harrier, there's a passage wood sandpiper there at the moment. So that's a good place. And the other one is a coastal walk between a place called Llangranog and Cwm Tuddy. You'd have to look at a map for those, but, <laughs> but the, the coastal walk there is superb. You've got some brilliant invertebrates, some some great bees there, cliff mining bees are there, um, a really nice botany there now as well. The, the, the betony when I was there a couple of weeks ago looked fantastic, and you've eye level with things like kestrels and peregrines, and you're looking out to see at stuff like harbour porpoises, bottlenose dolphins, grey seals, so that's uh, gannets as well, manxies, manx shearwaters going. So that's well worth a visit as well. And I'd nip down as well, just to the southern edge of Ceredigion, to the Tyvee marshes near Cardigan on the, the River Tyvee. That's um, South and West Wales Wildlife Trust Reserve. And that's well worth a visit. And I, I would say if it's... So I think depending on when he's going, if he's got a chance to pop down to Newquay and sit on the harbour wall, might get to see the bottlenose dolphins in the yeah, bay at Newquay. Right. Yeah, leave it until high tide and they're yeah. really good fish and chips just just there as well. Oh, really they do chips. indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and the pub and used good. to do the most amazing melt in the middle chocolate pudding as well. Oh, and if you're going <laughs> back up the road through Aberaira on this honey ice cream there to die oh, for, that is really good. Is, yeah. is, is that ice cream place still there? Yeah, it is. Yeah, oh, it is. It I used is. to love that. I, I lived in Aberaira when I was working in Newquay. Oh, so. it's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, loved it. Yeah. <laughs> You've made me hungry now. I'm going to go down and make yep. a cup of tea and a butty now in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Since we're on the subject, let's finish on some Welsh wildlife. If you had to pick one spot, Yolo, in Wales for wildlife, what would be your favourite, do you reckon? Do you know what? Um, okay, this is going to be a funny answer because I'm not going to no. tell you where my favourite place is because right. hardly anybody goes there Good and plan. it's where I go to escape. Good plan. So, um, I'm not going to tell you, but I tell you my second favourite and it's a very well-known one, it would have to be Skomer Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, but unfortunately this year you can't go out there because of the pandemic. Yeah. Mm. But when you got half a million seabirds on mm. one island that's maybe two miles long, but about a mile wide, you just can't beat that. And if you are going to go, if you're lucky enough to go, stay overnight. Go between yeah. April, May, June, early July so that you get the maximum number of, of birds. You'll also get porpoises, dolphins offshore. You should do slowworms, a brilliant place for slowworms. And of course, at night, you get all the manx 
shearwaters coming back to their burrows and, and, and the noise is just incredible. Mm. This cacophony of just weird birds making this incredible noise. And it, it's said that there is some Viking writing saying that they feared the island because of the witches that were there at night. And that strongly suggests that the Manxes were there over a thousand years ago. Yeah, so it's an amazing place, Skoma, really is. That and if you, if, you, if you do and you get to go and stay overnight as well, it's well worth going out and seeing if you can find the frogs and toads out yeah. there because they're just, I mean, so there's a few um, almost red frogs, which are I saw for the first time last year. And they're just amazing. Like, you know, the colour is is amazing but the the toads look completely different to the ones that we have here in somerset even though they're the same species as well mm. so it's, it's just amazing and the glowworms we saw glowworms glowworms they probably glowworms. i know they got glowworms on there and yeah probably I went, glowworms yeah. i went yeah. down to martin's haven in june this year and we filmed some glowworms sorry early july this year we filmed mm. some some glowworms on the mainland as well yeah. And, uh, you know, just just fantastic oh, invertebrates. Right. And you are right. And the thing with the toads as well, not only do you get them brick red, but they're huge. Mm. And yeah. they're huge, partly because the slugs on there are massive. Oh, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> and in order to eat those, you've got to be a big toad or a big frog. You know, if you do go out at night, take a torch, because the likelihood is you'll stand on them. Yeah. 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 We, um, we, we both stayed over. I stayed over, oh, it would have been about five, six years ago now. And I remember being, we were on the uh, path you go down before you get to the steps that go all the way down. So we're on that path. And I was in my in my camera bag, so I'm leaning over. I can't remember, we might cover this in episode one. Episode one ended up being about Scoma, funny enough. But, you know, the person I was with uh, was shining a torch um, so I could see what was going on quickly. Literally just put it on for a split second. And then he went, oh! And then I felt something brush my the back of my head. And I and I, t- I started to stand up and turn around and say, "Is there something?" And they said, "Don't move, do not move." And there was a manx shearwater sat in the hood of my coat because <laughs> they don't exactly land; they sort of just crash into the ground and yeah. <laughs> upright themselves, don't they? They're just and like you say, that noise they make is oh, it's extraordinary. It's haunting. It's yeah, really it haunting. Yeah, yeah. They, they they're amazing birds, and exactly what you say, you know, they're seabirds. They're not, of course, land birds at, at all. So. You know, the, the legs are right underneath the tail. They're very awkward on land. And when they land, you see them shuffle along. So they, they're such cool birds. And the noise, here we are. I'll see if I can play this for you. <laughs> Amazing noise. Uh, and, and the thing is, you know, when you've got a couple of hundred thousand birds making that yeah. noise, it's you just, there's nothing else quite like it anywhere on earth. And you, and you can, you know, when you stay overnight, you can actually, you just lie in bed and you can hear them all coming in and you can hear that noise even in the buildings. Yeah. It's amazing. I found it quite um, a bit like white noise. It helped me go to sleep. <laughs> it's a bit weird. But it's certainly preferable to the person snoring in the same room as me, I could tell you. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, you got the chuff there as well. That's the best. Um, I had a rather embarrassing, uh, I was down there for a few days before I went to Scoma. And I saw these, I thought they were chuff. I looked up and they made a really weird noise, but I couldn't see a red beak. And for the next two days, I was like, oh, I wonder if the Welsh jackdaws have, because I'd read somewhere some birds have accents. And then two days later, I heard the same birds again. They landed this time and it was actually a chuff. So <laughs> somehow missed the red beak. I think it's so thin. And it was against the sun. Oh, yeah. I, I just love chuff. There's something about chuff. They're just such weird, yeah. you know, they're crows, but they're, they're a bit more like, I don't know, a, a large blackbird really aren't they it's a bit of a weird 
They're cool things. I, yeah. I think that there are two birds that fly for fun. And I know Chris Packham would disagree. He said, oh, no, they all fly for a reason. You know, they're, yeah. they're learning about their aerial mastery or, or, or they're working out hierarchies or, or, or whatever it is. But I still reckon there are two birds that fly for fun. One is the raven and the other one is the chuff. You're only going to watch them. You know, they'll bounce on the wind and you're thinking, they're looking at me saying, you can't do this, mate. Yeah. We can. Yeah. You know, they're fantastic yeah. birds. They're cool birds. Oh, definitely with ravens. There is, I mean, I've seen some captive ones and most animals you look at, you know, like a cow and there's there's nothing looking back at you. But that raven... That is sussing you out and working you out. And there's a reason they call them avian primates, isn't there? There's just, there's yeah. definitely something looking back at you, working you out. And they're, yeah, I think they're smarter than a, is it a three or four year old child or something? I think. Yeah, well, out. yeah, well, I tell you what, I've been out and about in one or two towns in Mid Wales. I think quite a few of the people I saw out and about as well. Yeah, oh, I could say the same in Essex, to be quite honest. <laughs> but yes, I think that is probably a good place to end because we could probably talk. I dread to think how long we've been going because I've got a long lot to edit now. But it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on, Yolo. Thank you it so has much for coming. been amazing. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on and chat with us. No, brilliant both. And well done you as well for spreading the word, for educating the people out there. Cracking. Thank yeah. you. It's a pleasure. Right. Take so care, much. Both. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Well, that was YOLO, everyone. Uh, do check out YOLO's programme on iPlayer, which is called The Last Wilderness of Wales, I think. If you, if you look up Last Wilderness on uh, search for it on iPlayer, it will come up. Our next episode, <laughs> if I ever get around to editing this stuff, will be on wasp spiders. So, and that's, that's going to be like a little mini yeah. species special. Like we did with the stag beetles. Hopefully not like I did with the hydra, where it was about 10 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us on all social media. We've yeah, We're UK Wildlife podcast on instagram and on facebook and uk wildlife pod on twitter and don't forget please do get in touch with any questions or anything you have please make sure you use the hashtag uk wildlife podcast because it makes it easier for us to find your question and then answer it and if you want any shout outs in the show as well you know give us a shout and we'll we can do that for you so yeah, thank you absolutely. very much for listening everyone yeah well one last thing i will add Go to my website and if you're interested in photographing pond life, I've got a workshop and you've got some workshops up on your website, haven't you, Vic? I have. I have. Just before I went away, I actually launched all my 2021 Forgotten Little Creatures um, workshops. There's morning ones, evening ones. Uh, they're at weekends. So, yeah, that makes it a little bit easier. And I've still got spaces on my Dragonfly Roost workshops for May next year. So if you pop onto my website, vixpix.com, Go on to workshops, they're all there, and a proportion from that goes into funding the Forgotten Little Creatures project. So, and um, particularly with the Forgotten Little Creatures workshop, that money goes directly back into the project. So, I can continue working on that and my next books. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Yolo. We'll see you next time. Yeah, take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.